This program contains explicit content and subject matter which may be unsuitable for some listeners. Discretion is advised. You've got questions. We've got all the answers when it comes to sex and more. This is the A to Z of Sex with Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. Every week, we pick a series of topics that you've been wanting to know about. It's an encyclopedia of sex, intimacy, relationships, and so much more than that. Let's get things started. Now, here's your host, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the A to Z of Sex with me, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. I'm a sex and intimacy coach and a psychologist, and I've spent the last 30 plus years helping people to create and maintain meaningful relationships with sizzling sex without the shame. We are working our way through the erotic alphabet one letter at a time. Today, the letter is F, and F is for polyamorous families. Dr. Elizabeth Eli Sheff is a researcher, expert witness, coach, speaker, and educational consultant. With a PhD in sociology and certification as a sexuality educator from ASECT, Dr. Sheff specializes in gender and sexual minority families, consensual non-monogamy, and kink and BDSM. Chef is the foremost academic expert on polyamorous families with children, and her 20-plus year polyamorous family study is the only longitudinal study of poly families with children to date. Currently lecturing at the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga, Chef has also taught at the University of Chicago, University of Montana, Georgia State University, Oglethorpe, Oglethorpe Emory, and the University of Zurich. Chef co-chairs the Consensual Non-Monogamy's Legal Issues Team for the American Psychological Association, Division 44. Dr. Eli is also editing a series of books on diverse sexualities, genders, and relationships with Dr. Richard Sprott and the publishers Roman and Littlefield. In addition to the more than 20 peer-reviewed journal articles and chapters Dr. Eli has written, she's also published four books and is working on more. Chef's first book, The Polyamorous Next Door, details the findings of the first 15 years of her research on polyamorous families with children. Her second book, Stories from the Polycule, is an edited anthology of writing by polyamorous folks. When Someone You Love is Polyamorous is Chef's shortest book that guides family members and significant others who are trying to understand a polyamorous loved one. Children in Polyamorous Families is the newest book, came out in 2020, a short summary of her findings on children to date. She blogs for Psychology Today, the at the Polyamorous Next Door. In collaboration with three colleagues, Dr. Eli developed the Bonding Project, a test people can take to explore their preferred bonding styles. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's my pleasure. I'm really excited to have you because this is an area that I get asked about a lot. Um, As some people, who have listened to my show know, um, although I don't talk about this very often, I've spent 30 years in the, in the family court system as well. I'm also an expert witness. Um, and um, I've done, you know, all sorts of stuff there, but this is, it's, this is an area that I still will, I will be willing to come in on a case around um, this, anything that's gender, sex, and relationship diversity, I'm willing to be part of the case. And I've done most of my work in, the, in, in public law cases rather than private law. So where the local authority was trying to remove children from families. And it's a contentious, it's a contentious issue. It's also the area where um, people who are monogamous and don't understand have the most concern. And so the media also 
has a lot to ask about that. Absolutely. I, I definitely think underlying that, but what about the children question is the assumption that anyone who's not kind of a conventional heterosexual monogamous person might somehow damage or rub off on their children with their weirdness. And that definitely is kind of one of the similarities between polyamorous families and families with same-sex partners at the head, LGBTQ or however they conceive of themselves, um, is this assumption that they're going to somehow make their children malfunction. And there has been decades of research on gay families that has profoundly and conclusively indicated (laughs) those kids are fine. Those kids are totally fine. And what actually hurts kids in gay and lesbian families is social stigma coming from people. And it's the exact same for polyamorous families. Those kids are fine. And what hurts them is the social stigma from outside. So it's these people who are like, but what about the children? They're pretty much creating the situation that they object against. Absolutely. I know one of the things that I find so interesting about this. So I remember when um, my son was seven, when I started seeing the, the man who's now my husband, and I was still living with his father. And that was a polyamorous relationship. At that time, we had separated already, but it, we li- we stayed in the same house. And um, my son had developed or started developing a relationship with my husband, who he now has like is completely bonded with. That's his dad. And he was going to stay with my parents. And then he was my mother was going to fly him across the country and drop him with me and my husband to spend some time. So they could really get to know each other because at that point he hadn't emigrated yet. I mean, he didn't, we were six years long distance because I have a child, right? So I needed to make sure everything was going to, was going to gel. And I realized that he loves him. So he was talking about this person and I'm knowing my parents, I knew that they were going to rubbish it or say something that was damaging. So I thought, oh shit, I need to say something. So I said to the both of them, I need you to understand that if he talks about me being in a relationship, him being another special person of mommy's, of mommy's special friend, whatever he was going to say, that this is completely above board. I'm not having an affair, right? I'm, I'm polyamorous. That This is what this means. I've always been polyamorous. You know, I had one monogamous marriage that was miserable. So, you sh- you know, this is... I'm, explaining the concept and all of this. I got letters from my parents. Like my father was like this far from disowning me because I was going to damage my child. And, you know, he was like, you know, this is not okay. My father was able to, um, he likes logic. He likes logic very much. And I have a brother who's gay who donated sperm to a friend and there was an egg donor and a surrogate. And all of those people are still involved in these children's lives in parenting roles and we're all involved in their lives. And so I just said to my father, how come, how come you think it's great that his kids have so many people to love them, but my child should be limited to, you know, only the one male figure in his life. And especially bound by who you're having sex with. Like that kid cares at all who you have sex with. That kid doesn't want to know. Yeah. 
So, I mean, it was one of those, my, my father's response then was, okay, okay, you're right. It doesn't make sense. I'm having an emotional reaction. I'm going to go sort it out. But because they never had it put in their face again, I'm not, my dad's gone since 2013. But my mother now, because she looks at us as married. So now, obviously, we're, we're an ordinary couple, which is right. couldn't be further from the truth. I actually have um, two kind of full-time relationships and another number of relationships. And my son knows that he can go to any of these people. He loves all of them. He's bonded with all of them. He's got the best of all worlds as far as I'm concerned, because he just has so much um, support and security. And if he doesn't want to take something to me, then there's so many people who are all demonstrating different aspects of life to show him how many choices he's got. So at any point, were you concerned about them trying to take custody away from you? That's a legitimate concern. It is a legitimate concern, but there's my parents are in the US, I'm in the UK. So there's no way they would have tried to do that. I was, in fact, however, concerned about, well, I, I, I was concerned when divorcing my ex, his father, it wasn't about the polyamory. That was the kink in BDSM. You know, I was really concerned that he was going to try and bring that into court, but I didn't divorce him until the child was already um, 14. And at 16, they're allowed to make their own decisions. At 14, the judge will listen to them. So when he was, you know, he threatened me at one point and I said, you go ahead and do that and see and see what happens when they bring your child, when the social services interview your child and see what happens, right? Because, you know, he will have plenty to say. Now, he didn't know anything about that at that time. He does now, he's 18, you know, but he knew nothing about that at that time. And all he would have said was they're great parents. I don't understand what's happening. Yeah, he would have been really distressed by that. But that is, it's certainly legitimate in this country. And I've dealt with private law cases where polyamory has been one of the issues. um, And there's been an effort to remove custody as a result of that. And, um, and public law cases where both polyamory and kink and BDSM have been issues. And there's been an effort to remove custody to the state. Yes. Um, And I would say it's rarely the state in the United States, for the most part, it's either an ex-spouse, as you mentioned, or a wealthy and religious grandparent. Those are the two primary threats to custody. So your parents, if they had been perhaps more religious and less open to logic, and had lived in the same country and had had significantly more money than you, you may have been in a completely different situation. That's what I see sometimes in my expert witness practice, that it's the polyamorous people's parent who is concerned about their grandchild or an ex-spouse, hardly ever the state. Because in the United States, they take kids away for abuse or neglect and polyamorous families tend to have more attention. So the opposite of neglect, neglect. (laughs) And I would say abuse is less likely to happen when you have multiple adults around because an adult can step in and say, here, I'll take care of this. Or some adult who's getting really frustrated can step out and not have to deal with, you know, the kid Every night I had one respondent who was not a, it was a um, research respondent, not an expert witness client, but she had a colicky baby and she was saying that, so, and she had two male full-time partners in the home. So 
each one of the three of them were only on full time with the baby one night in three. So they could get two nights of uninterrupted sleep with if you have ever parented a sick infant, that's gold <laughs> to be able yeah. to sleep. So she said if she was parenting that baby solo, she could see how people would shake their babies and colicky babies get shaken and sometimes it kills them. So that's definitely abuse. And I think for her, she could absolutely see how polyamory intervened in the potential for abuse. Yeah, here, interestingly enough, the state doesn't get involved for no reason. So it's still the same reasons that the state gets involved. So you'll have a parent because the state because you can end up with a guardian ad litem in a private law case anyway. But what you'll have is you'll have a, um, a disgruntled parent who will report and and the state will come and interview. And if you get the wrong social worker. That's how we end up in that situation, because you get the wrong social worker or the wrong guardian ad litem. And I've had people tell, you know, who knew nothing about me at the time, remarking about things that were depraved and, you know, debauched and, you know, and that's not a good environment for a child. And I remember looking at the woman and saying, number one, we aren't the morality police. Right. So I don't get to decide what people do in their private lives. They can do whatever they like as long as their child isn't seeing it or involved in it. Those two things would be problematic, and I would have a lot to say about that. But if they're not seeing it, they're not involved, they're not neglected, then it's none of my business, and actually it's none of yours. Um, And she was not real happy with me. But that's important because that's the bit where people get have difficulty because they cannot separate their own mores and their own prejudices from other people's ways of living. And with that stigma, then they create that hostile environment for yep. these families. So we're full circle back to them yep. doing exactly the thing they're worried about impacting the children. Which is, yeah, I mean, it just, it drives me nuts. I have such absolutely. I, I guess also, and I wonder what you think of this. As For me, part of the reason that I have such a problem with it is that even To me, it seems natural that people might love more than one person and that there's that there's should be no barrier to that. I I mean, like I can see all the reasons that people like jealousy and all these things that I end up working with people around. But the basic concept for me makes total sense. And I feel like polyamorous families live like the, the traditional extended families used to live. Right. Even though those people were relatives and not necessarily sexually involved because you get metamors and, you know, all sorts of extensions that come with some polyamorous families. So it just feels like a village raising the kids again. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I wanted to circle back briefly to something you said about loving more than one person being natural and as a sociologist, kind of the the whole field of sociology, we're a little bit allergic to that word right now. We're all about social constructionism that we're not kind of defined by our genes or essentially determined by our you know genetic coding or something. That's what sociologists think about natural. And 
on on the flip side of that personally as someone who is i would say more monogamously wired you all out there in podcast world can't see the, the air, air quotes, quotes i'm making yes. <laughs> um i think desire for multiplicity is absolutely as deeply ingrained as a sexual orientation thank that you some people are absolutely polyamorous by orientation and i would say for myself i have tried so hard to be polyamorous because intellectually I am polyamorous, but in my heart, when I love, when I'm, I am that amorous person that falls in love. I know mm -hmm. some people are the aromantic folks out there. I see you. I'm not ignoring you. I am like deeply, like once I fall in love, I'm just smitten and could not, you have to like, wave flags and do a big dance in front of me to get me to notice you. And then I'm like, Oh, Hey, okay. Bye. You know, like I really do only have eyes for my beloved. And I have ironically tried not to be that person and it just has not worked. For I, me. Find, I, mean, I find that so interesting. So, I mean, natural to me, I understand what you were saying about the way sociologists look at natural. I, I don't actually like the term very much, but, um, but I am definitely hardwired. I um, talked with people about this. I love, I was so relieved when Sari Van Anders did the research that said that basically we might decide to construct a different view of how we see orientation with different axes. Um, because I remember being confronted with sexual orientation and going, okay, well, I guess I'm bisexual, but what turns me on is power. So I am hardwired on the S side of the slash, I'm a slave. That's how I'm hardwired. All my relationships are like that, my sexual relationships and actually even my romantic relationships. And that works for me, but I was encouraged to try, try to not do that. And I was told it was something I was adopting when for me, it feels hardwired and it does feel hardwired for polyamory as well. I, I really tried monogamy. I tried very, very hard. It just doesn't work for me because the energy it's such a it's such an energy connection and if that happens it happens and that's it and to have to then deny myself a full expression of that feeling which is what monogamy would require was soul destroying and I you know, remember saying well when I when I really like somebody I want to have sex with them I don't always have sex with them, right? There are people I, because I have restraint and I have impulse control, but that's, for me, it's a full being response. And so I was like, well, okay, you mean I can only choose one of these? And I remember the first time I got married, because that was a monogamous marriage going, this is the last time I'm going to kiss somebody else. This is the last, so I did this whole thing in my head before I got married. Oh my God, I'm going to only kiss him forever. And whereas for some people, that's a wonderful thought. Like I found my soulmate and forever, you're the only person I will ever share these things with. For me, it was like, I was completely horrified. Absolutely. And I would say a lot of people are like, I'm only going to kiss this person forever. We made that story up when we only live to 40. You know, now we're, now we're living twice as long and we're sexually active. 
later in our lives, you know, not just because of Viagra, but because we can, some people have continual desire into their 90s. So this, the cultural expectations of monogamy, I think, have been incredibly damaging to many people, forcing them into either unhappy monogamy or cheating, which is also soul-destroying. So having an option to do it consensually, I think so many people are freaked out about that because it can be so appealing across the board. Like, Mm -hmm. to be gay, you need to have same-sex sexual desire. Yes. So people are more like, okay, you're gay, I can deal with that. Like, I know I'm not gay. Well, that's not true. Not me, me. I am gay. But some people know yes. that some people are not gay. Right. Um, and so it just doesn't seem as threatening to some. Well, yes, because well, it's also it's also, you know, it's the non-binariness of it as well. Because, exactly. Because it describes so many things. It really isn't a scale from there's a scale from monogamy to non-monogamy. Everything is a scale. People don't sit at one end. And so anytime something is slightly gray, people freak out. Absolutely. So I'm I'm so I'm so amazed by your research. I mean, 20 years logic, I mean, longitudinal study. I mean, it's just it's actually 25 this yeah, year. 25, I forgot yeah. to update. Yeah. That's amazing. And what are the families like now? Um, You know, it's interesting. I would say the parents, because they're um, kind of the very youngest of the baby boom and Generation X are Mm -hmm. the parents. And then the kids are the youngest of the millennials and Generation Z. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say the parents are overall still in pretty good shape in terms of their relationships. But something pretty significant I found in the more recent data collection is they got in the United States, we had a very significant recession in 2008. Yes. And that many of them have not fully recovered from that. Like that wiped them out and brought them down an economic notch and they haven't necessarily regained. I mean, and that was pre-COVID. So even yeah. if they had regained, how much oh. of that has been lost again? So oh. I'm seeing while this generation retains their, um, many of them have white privilege. Many of them are highly educated. So they do have some social privileges. Even the um, BIPOC folks in the sample also tend to be fairly highly educated Mm -hmm. and work in professional jobs. So they tend to also be middle-class. But even with all of that, it hasn't necessarily buffered them from the, the pretty harsh climate, economic climate has been difficult for them. That's been a pretty significant finding from this most recent round. I would say the children seem less affected by that or they talk about it less, maybe because the parents are looking at retirement and they're like, oh shit. Right. And the kids are looking at their lives and what they talk about a lot more are the skills they learned in their polyamorous families for communication. And what I'm, I'm seeing a lot of 
emotional resilience skills that they come out of their families able to go somewhere new, meet people they have not met before who might not be like them, interact fairly smoothly, begin to establish emotional connections, and over time develop networks of emotional intimacy wherever they go. And it's not it may or may not be romantic. The, the sexual component of it is much less important to them than this ability to make and sustain supportive connections. I love which it. is key to adult life. Absolutely. And it- I love that so much. I, you know, I, um, that people know that the, the last book, the book before this one that came out yesterday, the last book was, um, a self-help book with essential life skills for gaslighting and trauma survivors. And it, it is about those skills. It's about those skills that many people do not get in their families, like how to self-soothe, um, like how to deal with when somebody is pushing against your viewpoint and how to hold your ground, how to find that place in yourself that knows and to, settle into that, how to test your reality out with a safe person, how to connect all of those things that are skills that kids who grow up in families where they have access to more healthy adults gain because they can watch the healthy adults doing the thing. Because we still, would you agree that kids still learn more by osmosis, by observation, by modeling, than they do by actually being taught those sorts of skills. Absolutely. And I think especially the kids in my sample speak directly about learning things by osmosis. For instance, constructing chosen family. Yes. You had mentioned earlier the importance of your chosen family. Yeah. They see as children their parents constructing chosen family, not only with partners, but with metamors. Do you yep. think your listeners know what that word means? You might as well define it because it never hurts to do it a million times. A metamor is a partner's partner. So, like, if, if, I've got my wife and then her girlfriend would be my metamor because she and I are not girlfriends, but we are both connected through my wife. So that would be metamor. Um, And so the children in the polyamorous family see um, their parents constructing chosen families with partners, metamors, other polyaffective relationships. I made up that word polyaffective to describe the Mm non-sexual relationships in polyamorous networks. From the outside, I think a lot of people see kind of the sex as the biggest deal and that everyone in the whole scene must constantly be having sex with each other. But in truth, at least what my research finds is that you'll have a group of polyamorous people and some of them will be having sex with each other, but others of them won't. They just not, it's not this constant orgy. In fact, most people say that they have mostly two-person or dyadic sex and that group sex is much more of a, one of my respondents called it a condiment, you know, used sparingly, <laughs> but not certainly the main event, which for her was much more one-on-one sex. And I've heard that from quite a few 
of my respondents, actually. And I would echo that. I mean, I think I always get asked about the sex because um, I'm out very publicly and I work with lots of people. You know, my, my specialty um, is gender, sex and relationship diversity. So almost my entire client population falls in that category, which includes lots of polyamorous people. I also work with polymonogamous couples, which is always interesting work. Um, but people focus on the sex, but sometimes there isn't even any more sex than there would be in a monogamous relationship. It's just sex with different people. Right. So if you have a relationship in which you have mismatched desires and you, and so you have another partner, you may, you, you're not going to be having more sex than you would have had. you you you're likely to be having the sex you wanted to have that level of sex that you wanted to have with the one partner. It's not, it's, it's so much about those emotional connections. Now, not for everybody. We're talking about polyamory and in polyamory, people have relationships. There are other kinds of non-monogamy that are about sex. Absolutely. Definitely. And no judgment there. There's nothing wrong with that. So for example, swinging is about the sex pretty much. And so there you wouldn't be, if you were interviewing swingers, you would not find them talking about the amazing emotional relationships that they were having. Although some people do make friends with swinging partners. Many don't. Many go to a club. They meet people every a couple of times. That is about sex. This is about long-term relationships. Definitely. And when I look at these polyamorous families that last for 30, 40, 50 years, it is those polyaffective or non-sexual relationships that really make or break it over time, especially if there is a partner with two partners and they're in close physical proximity, either living together or in the same town. If those two partners support each other and get along well, then they can even help the polyamorous relationship through difficult times. They can help each other sustain Mm -hmm. their relationship with their partner. If those two partners don't like each other and there is constant clashing between the metamors, that is an unhappy family that is difficult to sustain and either, in my research experience, breaks up fairly rapidly or somehow finds more distance so those two partners are not in constant interaction. So that's interesting to me because because that's my clinical experience as well. My clinical experience is that when we're looking at this, I mean, we often call what the first bit where everybody's friends or closer kitchen table polyamory, which means that basically I would be happy to have all of you around my kitchen table, sit and chat, and you'd all be happy to talk with each other, or at least most of you would. Um, And that those are the things that tend to be the longer term relationships that last. Um, and the, or the ones where partners don't know each other at all and don't care. Right. And, and that's okay. But if you have two people not getting along within the network, that is usually a pretty rapid decline. And actually some people have the rule. I'm not having that drama. So if I see that happening, I will end a relationship in order to right in order to deal with that drama. And so and some you know- poly groups construct that rule. Absolutely. 
And some of my more recent research, actually, I've found really interesting things about that kind of no drama rule, depending on how that expresses, that can also be no poor people, no people who with disabilities or something, because sometimes being poor means drama. You might mm. get evicted. You yep. might have issues with your electricity being turned off or not being able to reach on your phone because you can't sustain that. Yeah. So no drama that can sometimes, which I had not gotten in previous waves, I'm getting this time. Sometimes no drama means, yeah, don't fuck with me emotionally, but it can also mean I don't want to deal with your difficulties. And we're going to say in our kind of middle-class, white, able-bodied world, ah, uh, you got drama. Let us know when you got your shit figured out. Like, So funny to me because, and perhaps because I am, um, I'm white passing. I'm in a, in a, in a, a, a relationship with an African-American man. Um, and I'm in another, my other main poly relationship is with, um, British trans man. The family, so a lot of my family, we have like every single nationality in our families and in, in our extended networks, but also many of us have disabilities. So when I hear you say that, it's so funny to me because many of us have chronic illness, um, autoimmune disease, blah, blah, blah. And uh, people have been together for years and years and years as you would be when you make monogamous kinds of commitments. And so I guess we're not conforming to that white middle-class standard. That is not considered drama. What even, even money problems isn't considered drama. Drama for, I think, our group of people would be um, trying to break people up, being emotionally difficult yes. in those ways, right? Yeah. Those are the things that are drama. Drama is inappropriate, inappropriate, lots of inappropriate behavior. People who do things that are impulsive that get them into difficulty. I have a personal rule. You know, I will not be in, be in a relationship with anybody who has an active substance abuse issue. Been mm -hmm. there, done that. Don't, don't want to go in that kind of relationship again. Mm -hmm. But it's not, it's about what that, uncontrolled impulsivity does. And so it's so fascinating to me to hear that there's a degree of the group of people who actually use it to sort of make sure everybody's in the same sort of middle-class status and the same. I don't think that's their in conscious intent. Right. I'm hearing from people who've been ejected and it tends to be, I would say, among younger people, because mm -hmm. as you mentioned, especially people who've been together for a long time, I'm finding in that parental category, right. in that of my sample, those folks are really finding a lot of support around disability. They're not only dealing with each other's illnesses, but dealing with the death and dying of their parents. Family, yeah, parents. Absolutely. It's a lot to go through someone's house that they've lived in for 30 years and get rid of everything. Multiple people have mentioned that, how it's not just emotionally draining, but physically to Absolutely. go through all that crap. Um, so, and then to have maybe someone, if you do have multiple partners, then someone, one respondent was very 
grateful that she had someone to take her to chemo. And then when she would get home, someone had been able to like clean the house and make the kind of food she wanted and go to the, you know, like go to the grocery store, stock the house, get it ready. So having two people caring for her meant that when she was actively in chemo, just life was much easier than it would have been on her and both of her partners. And so we look at, we look at COVID and, and I know of situations where people have moved, been able to make a bubble because we were allowed to do bubble, make a bubble with one of their other polyamorous partners. And there was some serious illness and they were able to go and travel to look after that person who lived on their own with children in, right. in, in and so there was this network of people and other people when when COVID permitted, we were able to come in and support as well. And how important that is and how isolating it can be, particularly if you don't have biological family nearby or you're living in an area where you don't have friends nearby, how difficult it can be going through those sorts of things that I think young people, most, many, not most, many young people don't have a concept of illness and don't have a concept of disability. And that's because they haven't really experienced it yet. And they have that, I call it that narcissistic bubble that says, none of this can ever happen to me. And so I think it's probably easier for them to kind of look at that as, ooh, that's difficult. I don't really want to go there. I don't want to have to deal with that. Whereas once you get past a certain age, you're very well aware that at some point in in your life, you are going to experience at least one of these kinds of illnesses, right? That's just with the territory if you lose gravity yes (laughs) right absolutely and i think that's really i mean it's fascinating to me because it's such a it's such an unusual byproduct of the long-term relationships that's so wonderful is the number of people that you have to support you i had a conversation with somebody the other day who's part of my network and we were talking about you know with loss with the death of a partner there's a place to go. Yes. You still have, even if it's not a sexual relationship, if you've had a metamor for 30 years, that person is close to your heart. They've seen you through some shit. They have been there for you. Yep. Yes. So then you're not really alone, but on the downside, if you lose your metamor of 30 years, it's like, losing a spouse that absolutely pain and the external world doesn't recognize it you know they're like oh you lost your friend well yeah that's too bad so what's on tv you know like get over it already is what my respondents are telling me some of them who've lost people who are dear to them but the external world doesn't really recognize that kind of relationship as important Mm -hmm. well it was very important to them and to be told get over it already it's been three months you know, it's that's just ridiculous for them. They lost someone on par with a spouse. And just Absolutely. because they didn't do the spouse thing doesn't mean they should get over it already. Absolutely. And I'm, it's fascinating. And it, it's and so often people do react that way. Um, and trying to explain to them, I'm actually as clo- I was actually as close to this person as I was to my spouse. Yeah, and and it's it is the same. It's that same depth, but they don't understand because they've never experienced relationships that way, other than romantic partnerships. Right, right. 
So we're going to take a break in a minute, but one of the things I, I do want to talk about is that um, that idea, and it's somewhat stereotypical, of people who identify as female tend to be better at creating friendships than people who identify as male, emotional friendships. So I want to mm-hmm. I want your take on that because this is a thing that's been coming up a lot. As a sociologist, this is really for me where social constructionism comes in is that we construct and define one of the big things about masculinity that at least in the United States and much of the Northern Hemisphere defines masculinity in this very strong, independent, you know, invulnerable. One of the first thing boys hear when they're little is boys don't cry, that kind of bullshit that we force on men. And, you know, if we marinate them their entire lives with every message saying, be strong, be invulnerable, don't need anyone, don't show weakness, it's very difficult to then establish intimacy and friendships that are based on mutual support. Because part of mutual support is being able to say, oh, I'm having a rough time right now. And that other person comes back to you and says, I'm sorry to hear that. What's going on? You know, like that's a basis of friendship. And if you can't ever say, I'm having a rough time or I'm anything but impervious, then your friendship is squashed into this strangely weird, like it's okay to compete. It's okay to shoot things. And it's okay to talk about women, you know, or sex or something like that's also supported in what sociologists call hegemonic masculinity. Um, But the qualities of hegemonic masculinity do not lend themselves towards establishing intimacy, towards, you know, showing vulnerability. That's not allowed. You're not supposed to do that. So whereas women are encouraged to do that, partially as, you know, it fits with women's supposed softness and touchy-feeliness, but also if we are discouraged from some more active or what society deems masculine things, then we have to find other ways around. And traditionally, women's networking outside of male power structures has been one of the few ways that we can actually find reinforcement and freedom and support. So it's supported and encouraged for women in a way it's not. So I think it's really no accident that men can't wear dresses, although they could absolutely and do, but it's, you know, like trying to make and sustain friendships out of shooting things or competing. And I I find even when they do, you know, in certain, certain areas, even when they do, if they do establish an emotional friendship, it's at, it's at a certain level. It's, it's bounded at a certain level. It doesn't go where we traditionally are taught to go. But that when, you're, when you've got polyamorous situations, it takes some of the load off in situations where you have particularly heterosexual men, but this also impacts on, on non-heterosexual men, heterosexual men as partners, because if there's only one of you and one of them, then you're the repository of the entire emotional relationship. Exactly. 
And so having more partners is like, okay, like you go over there for some support, you know, that's just like, right. 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 But also I think within hegemonic masculinity is this tremendous emphasis on sex. Like it's okay. That's an okay to way to be close. Um, so first, I think for some men having access to multiple sexual partners, then accidentally gives them emotional support. Yeah. Um, and for others trying to establish non-sexual relationships with people, it's difficult to know what to talk about or how to act. Or if you can't like go to kind of the go-to thing of, yeah. oh yeah, sex is like kind of easy. We know how to focus on that and interact around that. But how about when we're not doing that? It's a little less a little squirrelier yeah. perhaps yeah. thank you i think that's really cool and i think it's i think it's such an important issue so tell me about the bonding project because i i think this is so cool i am actually really excited about the bonding project too it's an inclusive relationship test that allows people to kind of explore what we thought were all the various ways that people could bond, what we could come up with. So that was one-to-one, one-to-many, many-to-many, and solo. And depending on how people respond within each of those categories, first we just, we, we kind of figured out the categories and we didn't want to go with kind of conventional labels we thought about using monogamy to describe one-to-one but then we were we really realized that some people want to bond with just one other person but they don't want all the cultural baggage that comes with monogamy so you know they're not interested in perhaps a religious container around that or something um And one-to-many, there's so, so, so many ways people can do that, that trying to give it a name besides one-to-many was going to be too difficult. Similarly with many-to-many and with solo, I think so many bonding or at least dating apps and dating tests and things like that really overlook that category completely, that some people either are not looking for a partner or don't want to make the partner the center of their life Mm -hmm. or, you know, like there's a lot of reasons people might still want to have sex and companionship and love, but not necessarily live with a partner that's primary in their life. And some people, some solo bonders don't want to have sex at all. Don't want to have romantic relationships, but still want emotional intimacy, affection, companionship. And that I think is a lot of people want that, but that category at least has not been well recognized before. I mean, I think this is wonderful. I'm really looking forward to taking the test. I know lots of people who would have fun taking this test as well because we're all non-traditional bonders. So, you know, it, it would be really interesting to see how we come out on these sorts of measures. And also, um, are you hoping to see data? What are you hoping? I, I should, I'll back that up. Do you have any hypothesis that you think will be shown in the data from this? 
Mm, that's a good question. Could we first talk briefly about how you do come out, how the re- results come? Yes, please. Um, once we had broken it down into these categories of bonding and realized not to use kind of conventional labels for them, when we were trying to construct questions and then answer them, we came up over and over every, pretty much every single question with, well, it depends. How, I, how I'm going to answer that depends on which partner you're talking about, depends on what else is happening in my life, depends on their other partners, you know, mm-hmm. like, I can't answer, give you like one yes or one no, because Absolutely. there's so many. So we developed well, then we we had a for a little while we had a drop down menu with things yeah. that could depend on. That got so incredibly long. That drop down menu, we were like, "This is unde- undealable. We can't. That's not feasible." So we came up with this categorization system where you can either be comfortable, curious, cautious, or challenged within each of the four categories. So if you're comfortable in that category, you are like, oh yeah, this feels good. This is something I would absolutely choose. This is probably my favorite way to be. This is great. I like this. If you're curious, maybe you're like, oh, I hadn't really thought about that. I might be able to do that under some circumstances. It sounds kind of interesting. I might be interested in that, but I'm not completely sure. If you're cautious, you're like, oh, that really doesn't sound very good. I hadn't thought about that, but I really would be only able to do that under some very certain circumstances. And if you're challenged, it's more like, yeah, no, that doesn't sound good to me at all. I, that whole thing sounds crappy. That sounds uncomfortable. I don't want to do that. So the different bonding styles, you can have different relationships with them. And one of the places we hope to go with this is a dashboard system where people can, you know, take the test once and then come back later and take it again, maybe a year later and take it again and then compare, see what's changed over that past year. Because we definitely feel like bonding not only is complicated, but fluid. Mm -hmm. And people, I think people absolutely can change. And in fact, I was talking to someone who the first time she took it, she took it with a very specific relationship in mind. And then she waited a week and took it without any kind of just with herself in mind. And she got very different results. It was really interesting. interesting, That's really interesting. So that is really cool. So do you have specific hypotheses about where you think this might go? Um, Well, what we don't really have hypotheses, but what we're seeing so far, trends that might continue. Um, We just capped over 6,000 people now have taken the test. Wow. And um, it has been a lot of word of mouth and sex positive podcasts that have gotten the word out. So I guess it's not all that surprising that we're getting a lot of kind of sexual nonconformists right. taking 
this test. So the results that really stand out to me so far that I wonder if this will continue as we kind of broaden out and get a more mainstream audience at some point. Um, so far, two thirds of the people who've taken the test identify as LGBTQ. Wow. Which in mainstream society- That's outrageous. 4% or less, like all right. of them combined, 4%, all of us combined. Um, so two thirds LGBTQ is like way off the charts towards yep. sexual nonconformity. Um, of the folks who've responded so far, 80%, 80% want multiple sexual partners, but only 63% want multiple romantic Partners. Interesting. So it does seem like it's easier to have more casual, more fleeting sex, but that idea of maintaining emotional and romantic connections, that takes more work, maybe not so interested. Um, also, interestingly enough, 70% of the people who've taken it so far identify as cisgender women. Oh, so we've got a very queer female population saying they want to have multiple partners. Oh, that'll and be possibly more multiple um, more sex partners. Right. Um, and then finally, they're almost all millennials right now. Tons of millennials are taking this test. Okay, and so we're, really we're going to broaden would, your group. Yes, I sure hope so. I'm, <laughs> that's one of the things is we want to reach out to more heterosexuals we want to reach out to more older people definitely we want to reach out to we actually thought the primary folks taking this test would be gen z or the zoomers so the fact that it's mostly cisgender female millennials so far who are queer as a three dollar bill <laughs> it's really wonderful so <laughs> It's so for the audience, it's really the, it's the bondingproject.com, right? It's easy to find. Yes. Please go take the test because no matter how you identify, the data is very valuable. Research is really important because people and people who don't read research or do research don't realize that research really informs all sorts of policy in all sorts of areas. And when there's not research, it can be very hard to get money to places that it needs to be. It can be very hard to get health to places, health benefits to places where they need to be, and very hard to have the legal structures that actually support what people are actually doing. So to have the legal structures to support um, a polyamorous family, for example, as opposed to a monogamous family, that's not going to happen widespread until there's research. So please do me a favor and take this. I'm going to take it, and I'm going to go on... Dr. Eli's show, and we're going to go over my results. So I will let everybody know when that's happening so you can head over there. And I'm going to share this amongst my crew. Great. Which has a far wider age range. Um, uh, and I don't know who will take it, but I'm sure some people will. Wonderful. Um, and so maybe you'll get some older folks. I can certainly push it in the direction of some men. <laughs> Great. Um but yeah, no, I'm really excited about this. So I just want to thank you for joining me. This has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. I have enjoyed our conversation. Absolutely. Okay, guys, 
Have a great week. Next week is the letter G. I can't tell you what it is yet because I haven't decided. Don't forget that the fundraiser for creating a membership site with virtual safe space is still running on crowdfunder.co.uk. If you put my name in there, you'll find it. It's really important that we create spaces where we are not looking at things like shadow banning and, um, and basically removing of people's posts, particularly in private groups and with people who are looking in on private groups and all the censorship that's going on. If you don't think it affects you, just wait, it's been spreading. So if you're on any social media, you're probably at this point, try, if you try to talk about sex and relationships, experiencing some form of censorship. We're gonna create a space where that doesn't happen, where there's space for peer support, separate forums where there's space for social, and then education by reputable professionals. And it will be a moderated space, although each group will not necessarily be moderated. It'll be a moderated space. So that means we're vetting people as they come in. So we need your help. We also will have a couple of fundraisers coming up that are a lot of fun. And if you want the details, the easiest way to get them is to join my Facebook group. Um, Despite what I just said, I still have a Facebook group. Um, And I regularly have posts pulled down by Facebook in the Facebook group. Um, So it's just Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee's membership group. If you put, again, if you put in facebook.com forward slash groups, and then you put in Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee, you will find me. I look forward to seeing you all next week. Please stay safe and have fun. We hope you learned something today, but if you have more questions, go ahead and email them to Lori Beth at drlorybethbisbee.com. Then be here next Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of The A to Z of Sex with Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee on Voice America Health and Wellness. See you next week.